Welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemarie Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Wichita Beacon, The Voice, Wichita Journalism Collaborative, Blavity, Ebony, The Root, The Grio, one. Today I'll begin with an article from the Wichita Beacon titled, Is Oak Lawn Wichita's Forgotten Neighborhood? Written by Stephanie Lugli, L-U-G-L-I, August 16th, 2023. Andre Sisko's a-N-D-R-E-E-S-I-S-C-O entry into public service came about when she couldn't find anyone willing to mow the grass. Cisco moved to Oak Lawn, an unincorporated community sandwiched between Wichita and Derby in 1981. Nestled between the Arkansas River and Kansas 15, Oak Lawn sits on 260 acres, a neighborhood hastily built as a quick solution to a wartime housing shortage in 1952. Once one of the largest housing construction projects in the history of Kansas, Oak Lawn is not recognized as a municipality by the state of Kansas. It has also often lacked other clear markers of community recognition. At the time of her arrival, Cisco says residents were still assigned phone numbers associated with Hayesville, a Wichita suburb nearly six miles to the west. Her kids played baseball for the now defunct South Riverside Youth Club when the spark for her first dip into civic engagement ignited. Finding someone to manage the tall weeds and flooded ditches surrounding the field. I got ate up by mosquitoes. I called around to see whose responsibility it was to take care of it, Cisco says. I never could get anybody to cut the grass. I would call Riverside Township and they would say, it's the Oakland Improvement District issue. I'd call the Improvement District and they'd say, no, it's not ours. Exasperated by the lack of accountability from any local agency, Cisco decided to run for a position on the board of the Oaklawn Improvement District, where she's been the treasurer for 34 years. She's one of three elected officials who oversee the quasi-governmental entity that provides limited services to residents. In the eyes of the U.S. Census, Oaklawn shares its population count of about 3,000 residents with Sunview, a smaller neighboring community overseen by a similar but separate improvement district. The Oaklawn District's role includes park upkeep, senior services, nuisance abatements, and State Department for Children and Family Services. The rest of what the community gets comes from a patchwork of regional providers. The other board members are Don Winston, W-I-N-S-T-O-N, 
the president. And Nicole Heard, H-E-I-R-D, the secretary. There's also an office manager and community senior director listed on the website. Despite its proximity and historic links to Wichita, aside from water, Oaklawn receives minimal services from the city of Wichita. Road upkeep falls to Riverside Township. Oaklawn kids attend Derby Public Schools. The Derby Recreation Commission runs the Oaklawn Activity Center. Policing, fire protection, limited bus service, with an extension promised, and health services are provided by Sedgwick County. As a result, Oaklawn occupies a curious category, busting space in the local civic landscape. Its neighborhood that looks like a suburb, but is governed similarly to a sparsely populated rural area, a place where you buy milk at Dollar General and legally practice target shooting in your backyard. With a medium household income of about $37,000, about three-fifths of the county's average, it's a place that's mostly known for its poverty, if it's known for anything at all. But it also provides opportunity for an increasing, diversifying population, including Latinos, many of them Spanish speakers, along with Vietnamese and other Asians. While driving through Oakland, it's not unusual to spot a dilapidated home next door to a renovated one, a sign that the area remains attractive for those who want to buy a cheap home to fix or flip. Oaklawn resident Tanya Vidales, V-I-D-A-L-E-S, moved to the area with her husband 15 years ago. She sees a community that doesn't get much in the way of help so it simply chooses to make do with what it has. Oakland's origins lie in the housing challenges of another era. In 1951, a plat was submitted to Wichita's planning department for a development of 1,100 single-family units to confront a housing shortage correlated with the Boeing Military Airplane Company's employment needs during the Korean War. The Defense Production Administration declared Wichita as a critical area, immediately authorizing emergency defense housing despite opposition from the Wichita Real Estate Board, which cited a lack of financing for private builders. A 260-acre tract southeast of Wichita was purchased for $271,000, then immediately flipped into a $11 million development, with four subsidiary companies splitting the cost. 1,034 units in Oaklawn and 190 units in Sunview Heights immediately to the north. By June 1952, the first units were ready. The idea was that the community would be mostly self-sufficient, according to the Derby Historical Society and Museum, with its own water and sewer utilities and rental rates that included trash service. The flurry of construction near Boeing created concerns for leaders in nearby Derby, 
who worried Wichita's growth could swallow their town, according to historical society records. But officials in Derby's school district saw it as an expansion opportunity by consolidating with several rural districts to serve Oaklawn and other areas near Boeing and the Wichita Municipal Airport. The boom eventually went bust. Boeing cut back production in 1959, sparking an exodus from the neighborhood. The abandonment in the community reached staggering proportions with a 1964 survey from the Wichita Association of Home Builders showing that 688 of the community's 1,405 houses were vacant. As the years passed, the area developed a blighted reputation, but eventually stabilized with a mix of homeowners and renters drawn there by two key factors, cheap housing and access to nearby jobs. Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L, lived in Oakland for about a year when he was a kid. Now it's within the district he represents, and there doesn't appear to be easy answers for addressing Oakland's problems. He doubts there's much interest in Wichita extending a hand to the neighborhood. Would Wichita be interested in annexing Oakland? Well, the quick answer is no, he says. They don't want to have to provide services for Oakland. When asked for comment on Howell's statement, Megan Lovely, communications manager for the city of Wichita, directed this reporter to a state statute stating that no city can annex land within an improvement district. The Oakland Improvement District would have to dissolve for its land to be open for annexation. As the city of Wichita cannot annex Oaklawn because of the Oaklawn Improvement District, it would be the purview of Sedgwick County to provide other resources to this community, Lovely wrote in an email. Howell summarizes Oaklawn's pains through taxes and mill levies. The tax rate applied to the assessed value of a home. Cisco primarily focuses on quality of life issues, namely mending conditions that interfere with residents' use or enjoyment of the community. There are plenty of empty, rotting homes around, says Vidalis. Yes, there's always trash in the community. That's because people get large items and can't afford to have it hauled off or have the resources to move it anywhere. Many empty lots. Yards are overgrown. The Improvement District collects all nuisance reports on residents, including submissions made anonymously. A nuisance is a legal term referring to a condition or use of a property that interferes with the neighbor's use or enjoyment of their property. Kansas law allows a governing body to intervene on reported nuisances, either wholly removing them or diminishing them. In 2022, the Improvement District cleared 39 abatements according to data provided by Cisco. One additional abatement was handed off to the county, a move for nuisances that don't get resolved by the Improvement District's timeline and are considered a menace and dangerous to the health of inhabitants of Sedgwick County. The Improvement District has the power to abate nuisances 
and pass along the cost to property owners. There isn't much of a safe recreational area for families to use, like a tennis court or a swimming pool. There's a splash pad, but that's different. The problem is the Oakland Improvement District probably couldn't afford those services, even if they wanted to. Despite its challenges, Oakland remains an attractive place for newcomers to find affordable places to live. As a result, the community is diversifying, accelerating a trend that started in the 1990s. According to data from the 2021 American Community Survey, about 27% of residents within Oakland's census tract identify as Hispanic or Latino. Another data point from the same survey notes that 21.3% of the population over five years old speaks Spanish at home. The community is changing, Cisco says. We're getting more Spanish-speaking people in. We always had Asians and Vietnamese. No one can say for sure exactly what's driving the neighborhood's demographic changes. The influx of Latino residents could be driven by the opportunity to buy a cheap home and flip it. Others see the neighborhood becoming a refuge of sorts. Vidalis wonders if there's safety in numbers. Perhaps the heightened threat of deportations and separation of families caused that influx. When you show you have a higher percentage of population, it's harder to take down community. People don't feel threatened, so they feel that they can come out and be who they truly are. It's not uncommon for officials in Sedgwick County to periodically discuss ways to support Oakland more effectively, but it doesn't appear those discussions have led to sustained action. In 2002, the Wichita Sedgwick County Metropolitan Area Planning Commission developed a neighborhood revitalization plan for Oakland, adopting it as an amendment to its county comprehensive plan. The 50-page report finishes with a list of goals, such as recommending that Sedgwick County designate the Oaklawn Sunview area as a special district to create supporting codes and regulations to promote decent, safe, and sanitary housing stock and prevent conditions presenting a health or safety risk contributing to the neighborhood degradation or that are determined to be a nuisance. Lovely, the communications manager for Wichita, listed the services that the city provides open to Oakland residents. The city of Wichita offers many community programs, especially through our libraries and community service centers to both Wichita residents and non-residents including free computers, tax help, checkouts, filling the gap free lunch programs, assistance with water bill relief, and more, she says. The city also provides transit and supports public safety efforts in the community. Regardless of promises, one sentiment remains unwavering. Those living in Oakland want better for it. They see it as a gem that needs a little shining. Vidalis says her family moved to Oakland to raise her kids in a safe, healthy environment. Yes, Oakland was affordable, but she says the community has been a real nice area too. This article was titled, Is Oakland Wichita's Forgotten Neighborhood? Written by Stefania Lugli.
Wichita Beacon, August 16, 2023. Next, an excerpt from an article titled Richest NFL Players from The Voice by Stacker, S-T-A-C-E-R, September 14, 2023. There is no shortage of articles chronicling the richest to rag stories of NFL players who went broke after squandering massive fortunes. Some blew it on bad investments and leeching from hangers-on. Others did themselves in after parting bad judgment and reckless spending on homes, luxury cars, and shiny stuff of every imaginable kind. Many football players, however, got rich and stayed rich, and some are richer than others. Some of NFL's wealthiest current and former athletes earned their big bucks on the field. Today's top players, after all, earn massive contracts that sometimes run into nine figures with huge sums guaranteed or paid up front as bonuses. Others played at a time when athletes earned comparatively modest salaries, but struck it rich through post-retirement entrepreneurial pursuits and business ventures. A few of the following players made more money from big money corporate endorsement deals than they ever did on the gridiron. Some launched rap careers or made it big in Hollywood. Others turned their popularity and knowledge of the game into lucrative broadcasting careers where they received NFL-style paychecks without the bodily injuries. To uncover the richest NFL players, Stacker consulted celebrity net worth and ranked them by their 2022 net worth. The net worth figures in this list were calculated using a proprietary formula that factored in all publicity available data about each person, including salaries, real estate holdings, divorces, record sales, royalties, and endorsements, minus estimated taxes, manager's fees, agent fees, and lifestyle expenses. Here's a look at the richest players in the National Football League. Some are still playing today. Others were drafted in the 1950s and have been retired for decades. Some are known widely among football fans, but wouldn't be familiar to mainstream audiences. Others are household names across the country, even among people who have never watched a game. One person on this list never technically played in the NFL, but is the most powerful man in the league today. All, however, have one thing in common. They are very, very rich. Number 49, Jim Brown, tie, net worth $30 million. After being drafted by the Browns with the sixth pick in 1957, Hall of Fame running back Jim Brown quickly established himself as one of the most feared and productive rushers in football. A three-time MVP and an eight-time All-Pro, Brown went to the Pro Bowl for every one of his nine years in the league. After retiring in 1965, he translated his tough guy persona into a long and successful Hollywood career and supplemented his resume and income with broadcasting work, media appearances, and promotional endorsements. He's tied with Ray Lewis, worth $30 million, 
two-time Super Bowl champion, 12-time Pro Bowler, Super Bowl MVP, and all-time, seven-time All-Pro Ravens, great Ray Lewis, certainly earned his place in the Hall of Fame. His career earnings total $95.7 million. Number 48, Edgerin James, E-D-G-E-R-R-I-N, J-A-M-E-S, was a superstar from the get-go. The University of Miami alum was drafted fourth overall in 1999 by the Indianapolis Colts and throughout his 11-season career also played for the Seattle Seahawks and Arizona Cardinals. James won NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year in 1999 and was selected for the Pro Bowl and All-Pro teams four times. Number 42, Albert Hainsworth. Net worth, $45 million. Defense tackle Albert Hainsworth was named All-Pro and selected for Pro Bowl twice during his 10-year NFL career, which he spent mostly with the Titans. He earned $57.4 million total, with the back end of his career padded by a seven-year, $100 million contract he signed with the Washington Redskins, where he played for only two years. The deal is widely accepted to be one of the worst free agency transactions in football history, widely accepted by those who aren't Albert Hainsworth, that is. Calvin Johnson, tie, number 42. Net worth, $45 million. Calvin Johnson played nine seasons in the NFL, all in Detroit, pulling his career earnings of $112.2 million during that time. The six-time Pro Bowler and three-time wide All-Pro wide receiver signed one of the richest contracts in sports history in 2012, where he inked an extension worth of $132 million over eight years. 42. Carson Wentz, W-E-N-T-Z. Net worth $45 million. Eagles franchise quarterback Carson Wentz famously watched the Birds' legendary 2018 Super Bowl win over the Patriots from the sidelines thanks to an injury. The following year, Philly signed him to a record-breaking four-year, $128 million contract extension that, when bonuses and options are included, amounts to $154.7 million over six years, with nearly $107 million guaranteed. LeVar Arrington, A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N, net worth $45 million. Linebacker went to the Pro Bowl three times during his seven-year career, which he spent mostly with the Redskins, earning nearly $44 million along the way. Upon retirement, he launched a successful broadcast career that continues to this day on both TV and radio, and he also embarked on several successful entrepreneurial endeavors. Champ Bailey Net worth, $45 million. From the time he was drafted in 1999, cornerback Champ Bailey was the yardstick by which all other defense backs were measured. No cornerback has ever been to more Pro Bowls than Bailey's 12, and his 203 defended 
passes is an NFL record. He earned nearly $102.8 million over the course of his career. Terry Bradshaw, number 42. Net worth, $45 million. One of the most well-known names in football, Terry Bradshaw, was the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers from 1970 to 1983. Bradshaw led his team to four Super Bowl championships in the course of six years and was the first quarterback to win three MVPs and four Super Bowl titles. He was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1989, his first year of eligibility. Since 1994, Bradshaw has become a prominent voice in the NFL, working as a sports analyst and famously co-hosting Fox NFL Sunday. 41. Drew Bledsoe, B-L-E-D-S-O-E, net worth, $48 million. Although he would soon be overshadowed by a young sixth-round draft pick who backed him up when he was injured, quarterback Drew Bledsoe did amazing things in New England before Tom Brady took over the Patriots. He ended a long playoff drought, took the Pats to the Super Bowl, and established the franchise as a force to be reckoned with in the AFC during his tenure in the 1990s. Throughout his 14-year career, Drew Bledsoe earned $80 million. 29. Aeneas Williams, A-E-N-E-A-S, net worth $50 million. Drafted in 1991, Aeneas Williams played through 2004, mostly for the Cardinals, but also for the Rams. An eight-time Pro Bowler, the Hall of Fame defense back was named All-Pro three times. He earned $33.3 million over the course of his standout career. Number 29, Arian Foster, tie, net worth $50 million. Four-time Pro Bowl running back, Arian Foster spent eight years in the NFL, seven of them in Houston before retiring in 2016. He earned nearly $38 million on the field during that time. He then embarked on a successful music career with many considering him among the best athlete turned rapper in history. Gail Sayers, S-A-Y-E-R-S, tie, net worth $20 million. Legendary Bears halfback Gail Sayers was a force of nature in the mid-1960s, but it was after his retirement that he made his real money as an entrepreneur. In 1984, he formed a company called Crest Computer supply company, and built it into a successful enterprise. Jalen Ramsey, net worth, $50 million, tie. Jalen Ramsey went fifth overall to the Jacksonville Jaguars in the 2016 draft after an outstanding college career at Florida State. It didn't take long for him to become one of the best cornerbacks in the league, and make the Pro Bowl twice in Jacksonville. Ramsey helped the Jaguars snap a 10-year playoff drought. However, tension between him and the team's front office resulted in a trade to the Los Angeles Rams in 2019. In 2020, he signed a five-year, 
$100 million contract extension, which at the time made him the highest paid cornerback in NFL history. Jerry Rice, tie, net worth, $50 million. There is debate over the greatest of all time for many positions in football. Wide receiver is not one of them. The greatest and most prolific in history, without any close second, Jerry Rice was instrumental in the success of Joe Montana's 49ers dynasty and owns literally every receiving record worth holding. Throughout his career and beyond, the three-time Super Bowl champ and Hall of Fame legend supplemented his income with lucrative endorsement deals. Julio Jones, tie, net worth $50 million. Julio Jones has quite the career since getting drafted sixth overall in 2011 by the Atlanta Falcons. The seven-time Pro Bowler is considered one of the best wide receivers of the 2010s and holds the Falcons franchise records for receiving yards and receptions. Unfortunately, injury has plagued Jones, and in 2021, the Falcons traded him to the Tennessee Titans. He most recently signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers after being released by the Titans in 2022. Larry Fitzgerald, tie. Career Cardinal Larry Fitzgerald is an 11-time Pro Bowler and one of the greatest receivers in history. He has earned more than $180.8 million during his standout NFL career. In January 2020, he became only the second active NFL player after Aaron Rodgers to invest in an NBA team when he bought a minority ownership stake in the Phoenix Suns. Marcus Trufant, T-R-U-F-A-N-T, tie, $50 million. Retired NFL cornerback Marcus Trufant spent all but one of his 11 NFL seasons in Seattle. 2007 Pro Bowler Trufant was instrumental in mentoring the up-and-coming Seahawks secondary that would go on to Legion of Boom fame. He earned more than $36 million in a combined salary. We will continue with part two of the article titled Richest NFL Players from The Voice by Stacker, September 14, 2023, in the next series. The next article is titled Debbie Allen Shares Her Story with pre-diabetes, and the importance of regular eye exam. Written by Deanna Taylor, Ebony, September 8, 2023. The multi-hyphenate Debbie Allen is a legend in Black culture. Not only has she starred in some of our favorite TV classics like A Different World and In the House, but she's also produced many of them been instrumental in shaping young black and brown dancers, and so much more. Now Allen is bringing forth something equally important, her latest partnership that urges us to get regular screenings for eye-related diseases. A recent national survey 
found that 95% of adults at risk for retinal disease like WAMD, DME, and DR know little or nothing about them. At the same time, more than two-thirds of those adults, 70%, have experienced symptoms of retinal disease. However, once equipped with information about these diseases, most at-risk adults, 79%, were likely to schedule a comprehensive eye exam in the next six months. These findings are a large part of why the Gray's Anatomy executive producer decided to partner with Prevent Blindness and Regeneron to launch the GR8 eye movement, an awareness campaign that aims to educate and encourage those who are at risk or affected by certain retinal diseases and their loved ones to prioritize their eye health. This initiative speaks to millions of people who are at risk for retinal diseases and don't know it, Debbie Allen tells Ebony via Zoom video. This will bring awareness, education, and resources to those 60 and older who are at risk. I'm just trying to get information out, and this is a great way and an important reason to use my celebrity. It's kind of who I've become, and it's a great way to have a purpose in life for me. While Alan certainly carries an impactful and persuasive voice within Black culture, she candidly shares that this particular partnership is personal for her, as several of her family members have been affected by diabetes and its effects, including blindness. I grew up seeing diabetes in my family, seeing my grandfather give himself a shot and wondering, what is that? Then watching over the years, it takes my aunts, uncles, my father into a place of loss of eyesight, loss of life. So I know that I am at risk. It's in my DNA. I was lucky to have not developed full-blown diabetes, but I knew when I was diagnosed that I needed to take it seriously. Diabetes is a leading cause of blindness in the United States. Consistently high blood sugar due to poor glucose control over time can damage small blood vessels in the body, including the eye. Diabetic retinopathy, R-E-T-I-N-O-P-A-T-H-Y, is a disease that damages the blood vessels in the retina, resulting in vision impairment. Left untreated, fluid can leak into the center of the macula, called the fovea, F-O-V-E-A, the part of the eye where sharp, straight-ahead vision occurs. Your eyesight is an entry into so many things into the world. If I didn't have my eyesight, I couldn't do what I do on Grey's Anatomy or the play I just directed, Veg Clay McMahon, Mon, M-C-M-A-H-O-N, which has a huge visual component. I can't express the importance of it, eyesight. I've seen it take away people's ability in my family. I've watched it happen. 95% of the people at risk have no idea, as it's something that you may not always see. You really need to pay attention to your sight. And don't think that just because you're older, it's normal not to have great eyesight. That's just not true. This article was titled, 
Debbie Allen shares her story with prediabetes and the importance of regular eye exams. Written by Deanna Taylor, Ebony, September 8, 2023. The next article is titled, Wichita City Council Passes Regulations Licensing for Short-Term Rentals like Airbnb by Celia Hack. H-A-C-K, K-M-U, Wichita, NPR, September 12, 2023. Short-term rentals like Airbnb and Verbos will need to get a license and pay a fee to operate in the city of Wichita after the council passed new regulations Tuesday. Many of the short-term rentals that operate in residential areas currently do so against existing city codes. I would venture to say there are very few short-term rentals in Wichita today that are in compliance with the zoning, unless they're renting for seven days or more, said Scott Waddle, W-A-D-L-E, the city's planning director. The policy change city council approved means short-term rentals can now operate legally if they obtain the required licensing and zoning permits. The city's short-term rental market has grown significantly in the past decade. Wichita has close to 600 short-term rentals, according to Kelly Reed, R-E-I-D, an Airbnb owner and community leader. The regulations would require a $225 annual fee and liability insurance. Occupancy would be limited, as would the number of people gathering at the short-term rentals. The regulations follow a 2021 shooting at an Airbnb in Crown Heights, where one person died and three were injured. Neighbors grew increasingly concerned following the shooting. This is not acceptable, and it's damaging for neighborhoods, one resident wrote according to a list of public comments the city collected. Single night rentals make massive house parties possible. The policy allows short-term rentals in most residential areas. If the owner does not live on site, they would need to apply for a special permit to operate, which requires the notification of neighbors. If half of the notified neighbors oppose the short-term rental, then the application is forwarded to the city's planning commission. Existing short-term rentals have six months to meet the new licensing requirements and up to a year to get into compliance with the new zoning code. Neighborhood leaders and short-term rental owners both spoke at the meeting with mixed opinions on the city's new rules. Trish Heilman, H-I-L-E-M-A-N, a member of the College Hill Neighborhood Association, asked the council to consider even more restrictions. She requested a limit on the percentage or number of licenses that could be issued for short-term rentals in a neighborhood. Every house that becomes a short-term rental is one residence that can't be used for residents to live in, Heilman said. Kelly Reed, who owns two short-term rentals, said she supports most of the regulations the city council passed because they will help bring her Airbnbs in line with city code. I'm very much in favor of having a policy, so we aren't out of compliance, Reed said. We have been far behind the eight ball 
when it comes to being able to have regulation and policy around short-term rentals. She said keeping short-term rentals in the community is vital to the comfort of travelers passing through Wichita. We have a lot of families. We have a lot of folks here for weddings, for funerals, Reed said. We have people adopting babies who come. They're here for medical treatment. They're here for work. They're traveling nurses. And they have a need, and it's beyond what a hotel can provide. At the meeting, the council also considered a nuisance party ordinance that would allow police to find residents hosting raucous or disruptive gatherings, but it was deferred until December 12th to allow the city to contact more community groups that could be impacted by the policy. This article was titled, Wichita City Council Passes Regulations Licensing for Short-Term Rentals Like Airbnbs, written by Celia Hack, KMUW, Wichita, 89.1, NPR, September 12th, 2023. The next article is titled, Our Favorite Audiobooks Narrated by Black Voices, by Angela Johnson, The Root, August 13th, 2023. Night Crawling, written by Layla Motley, M-O-T-T-L-E-Y, narrated by Jonice Abbott Pratt. Layla Motley's Night Crawling was an Oprah book club pick, and the audio version, read by Jonice Abbott Pratt, is the perfect way to bring this beautifully written novel to life. The story is told from the perspective of Kiara, a teenager who's struggling to get by in East Oakland, California, after she and her brother have dropped out of high school. Without family, Kiara stumbles into night crawling to pay the bills. God Level Knowledge Darts, Life Lessons from the Bronx, written and narrated by Desus and Meru. God Level Knowledge Darts is a hilarious guide to life from the Bodega Boys, Desus and Meru. This is one time we'll recommend the audiobook over the hardcover version. You'll laugh out loud when you hear these guys explain how you talk to your kids about drugs when you do them. Gentlemen of Jazz, A Life in the Music, written by Ramsey Lewis and Aaron Cohen, narrated by Dion Graham. Gentlemen of Jazz tells the story of acclaimed jazz pianist Ramsey Lewis. Narrated by actor Dion Graham, the audiobook shares Lewis's journey from a childhood in Chicago's notorious Cabrini Green housing projects to becoming a Grammy award-winning musicians with over 80 recorded albums to his name. The Hate You Give, written by Angie Thomas, narrated by Biney Turpin. The Hate You Give is a best-selling young adult novel and a frequent target of conservative book bans. This ripped from the headline story follows a teenage girl who witnesses the death of her unarmed childhood friend at the hands of the police. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the novel, check out the audiobook version, read by the acclaimed narrator, Biney Turpin. If her voice leaves you wanting for more, and we're sure it will, check out her narration of the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, 
and James Baldwin, If Beale Street Could Talk. Born a Crime, Stories from a South African Childhood, written and narrated by Trevor Noah. If you're suffering from Trevor Noah withdrawal, check out the audiobook version of Born a Crime, the award-winning memoir from the comedian and former The Daily Show host. The audio version brings the story of his childhood in South Africa during a time when his parents' interracial relationship was considered a crime to life. Besides, who doesn't love listening to Trevor's voice? Shuri, a Black Panther novel, book one, written by Nick Stone, narrated by Anika Noni Rose. If you loved actress Anika Noni Rose as the voice of Tiana in Disney's The Princess and the Frog, check out her narration of Shuri, a Black Panther novel, a middle grade novel written by best-selling author Nick Stone. The story follows T'Challa's little sister as she tries to find out what's killing the plants the people of Wakanda need to survive. Devil in a Blue Dress, written by Walter Mosley, narrated by Michael Boatman. Set in 1948 Los Angeles, A Devil in a Blue Dress is one of the renowned crime fiction writer Walter Mosley's best and inspiration for the 1995 film starring Denzel Washington. The story follows a black war veteran whose financial prayers are answered when a white man offers to pay him to help find a missing white woman known to hang out in black jazz clubs. The gripping audiobook version is narrated by Spin City and the good wife actor Michael Boatman. The autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley, written by Malcolm X, Alex Haley. Narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. The autobiography of Malcolm X is one of the most important books of our time, telling the story of his rise to become one of the most important figures in the civil rights movement. And while we can no longer hear his voice, award-winning actor Lawrence Fishburne's narration is the next best thing. My Vanishing Country, a memoir, written and narrated by Bakari Sellers, B-A-K-A-R-I. My Vanishing Country is more than former South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers' memoir. It's a classic commentary on race relations and social justice. You'll be immediately drawn in hearing in the political analyst and attorney's own words how being raised by legendary activists in a small South Carolina town shaped his perspective. The Mother of Black Hollywood, a memoir written and narrated by Jennifer Lewis. In The Mother of Black Hollywood, actress Jennifer Lewis tells the story of her journey from growing up in the Midwest to becoming a star on stage and screen. Lewis keeps it real in this amazing audiobook version, sharing deeply personal details of her struggles with mental illness and sex addiction in the voice we all know and love. 
You can't touch my hair and other things I still have to explain. Written and narrated by Phoebe Robinson. You Can't Touch My Hair is a seriously funny collection of essays from comedian and two dope queens podcaster Phoebe Robinson. You'll love her hilarious take on being a black woman in America, including having to explain to people why they absolutely cannot touch her hair. I Am the New Black. In I Am the New Black, comedian and actor Tracy Morgan breaks down his rise from the projects of Bed-Stuy Brooklyn, S-T-U-Y, to comedy fame. Although some of the details of his journey are pretty heavy, you won't be able to stop laughing when you hear the story in his voice. Meaty Essays, written and narrated by Samantha Irby, I-R-B-Y. If you're looking for a laugh, check out Meaty, a collection of essays from Samantha Irby. She holds nothing back, sharing details of everything from bad relationships to inflammatory bowel disease in a smart and hilariously raunchy voice. The next article is titled, Fantasy Football and the NFL, Divide the Sexes and Races, But Women Are Creating Space for Themselves. Written by Deron Snyder, D-E-R-O-N-S-N-Y-D-E-R. The Griot, September 14th, 2023. Facebook gives users 11 options for describing their relationship status with choices that include married, single, or engaged. We must select the eighth alternative to honestly describe our relationship with the NFL. It's complicated. For every element we might love, there's an equally strong aspect to hate. Player speed and power versus teams, racist and sexist hiring practices, deep passes and long runs against denials of health risks and compensation for injuries, social justice messages on helmets versus keeping Colin Kaepernick off rosters. Every Sunday and most Mondays and Thursdays, like the majority of Americans who gather to watch NFL games, and create TV ratings gold. Other fans are relative newcomers with waves. Other fans are relative newcomers with waves flooding in from mobile betting and NFL fantasy football. The latter attracted Kenya Phillips, a financial analyst in New York, who's using the pseudonym for this article. Phillips couldn't care less about football until 2014 when she broke a barrier in her office's fantasy league. It all stemmed from my sense of gender equality, she says. Phillips learned about the league by chance during draft night and was upset that women weren't included. I didn't think that was very fair, she says, noting company-wide pools for March Madness and the Super Bowl are co-ed. And the Super Bowl are co-ed. I thought they should open fantasy football to women. When a team became available the following season, she and a like-minded co-worker became co-owners. The two women knew not much about football, neither the fantasy version nor real life. I knew there was something called the Super Bowl and something called the quarterback, Phillips says. I had zero interest. But she and her partner dove headfirst into research, studying websites while asking pals for strategy and tips. The women avoided finishing last in their rookie campaign 
and reached the playoffs in their third season. Then they made history in 2017-18 as the company's first back-to-back champions. When we won the second year, that really shut down all the haters who said the first year was luck, Philip said. Philip says, it wasn't luck. We knew what we were doing. She's not the only woman who found football useful for fantasy after a lifetime of ignoring the sport. A 2018 study in the Journal of Sport Management found that women represent the fastest-growing demographic for the fantasy sports industry, making up approximately 38% of fantasy football participants. The study found that men and women players share three similar motives, enjoy, enhance, and socialize. But two factors were deemed unique to female participants, challenge and connect. It's become fun because it's another way to bond with the people I work with, says Phillips, who now spends NFL Sundays like tens of millions of Americans. It's a nice way to make friends, maintain friendships, and participate in the national pastime. I enjoy going out with people and seeing the look of surprise when I tell guys I'm into fantasy football. Women have a growing presence in football's highly masculine domain, but still are outnumbered, according to Statistica. 51% of males consider themselves avid NFL fans, and 30% are casual fans. Among females, 24% are avid NFL fans, while 42% aren't fans at all. The league seeks to close that gap by making women feel welcome, with more options to play work, or just be fans. The NFL wants to keep growing. It's a capitalistic beast with an insatiable appetite for money. That's another reason it's such a turnoff to some, including former fans. But other folks have been indifferent forever, like Phillips was nine years ago. She still has girlfriends in that camp. I have women friends in my different tribes, work tribe, church tribe, book club, that say there's no football in any of those other circles. But I was happy to read that women's interest in football and fantasy football is growing significantly. And when I'm reading news and doing my research, I enjoy when authors are women. The NFL Fantasy League in USA Today's sports department had women in the 90s when my rapid fire team won a title. The NFL editor was a woman. I have female friends who are hardcore fans, particularly a Floridian who dons a Philadelphia Eagles jersey for post-game commentaries behind a podium. I also have sisters-in-law who have played fantasy and won suicide pools. Yet plenty of women and men still don't watch a lick of football. No explanation needed. You can be not interested because you never developed an interest for a number of legitimate reasons, Philip says. You're not just interested because it does nothing for you. Or you can stoke a passionate love-hate relationship with the NFL, despite your reservations, summing the difficult decision in two simple words. It's complicated. This article was titled, Fantasy Football and the NFL Divide the Sexes and Races, But Women Are Creating Space for Themselves, written by Deron Deron Snyder, the Grio. September 14th, 2023. Next, an excerpt from The Root titled Disney Plus Hidden Gems That Aren't the Princess and the Frog, written by Stephanie Holland, September 27th, 2023. 
There is a legendary, groundbreaking Disney character. She's so influential, the princess and the frog is a favorite on Disney. On Disney Plus. However, the streaming platform has a plethora of black programming to enjoy when you're not visiting Tiana and Louis in New Orleans. For those rare occasions that you've been looking for something other than the classic movie, these are some choices for family programming, not called The Princess and the Frog, The Little Mermaid. The new hit isn't exactly a hidden gem, but we can't talk about Disney movies without shouting out Halle Bailey's star-making turn as Ariel. Strange World. If you missed this animated movie about a family's adventure into a secret world, you weren't the only one. However, Gabrielle Union and Jabuki Young White, J-O-B-O-U-K-I-E, steal this fun little story. Kizazi Moto, K-I-Z-A-Z-I-M-O-T-O, Generation Fire. An animated sci-fi anthology featuring stories of new heroes in an Afrofuturism setting. Yes, sign up immediately. Rise. Go behind the life story of one of basketball's most popular stars in this movie, chronicling Giannis Antetokounmpo, A-N-T-E-T-O-K-O-U-M-P-O, and his brother's journey to the NBA. Saturdays. Roller skating rinks are an important part of black culture. It's joyous to see it being celebrated for the next generation in this Disney Channel series. Gargoyles. We had the best cartoons in the 90s, and Gargoyles is exhibit number one. Starring the voices of Keith David and Sally Richardson, its effortless blends modern stories of discrimination, gun violence, capitalism, and gentrification into its supernatural sword and sorcery origins. Though it's extremely 90s, it still holds up well. Roger and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Before Tiana became Disney's first official black princess, we had Brandy as Cinderella. She and Whitney singing Impossible, It's Possible will always be iconic. Brandy and Paola Montalban, M-O-N-T-A-L-B-A-N, will reprise their roles as Cinderella and King Charming in the upcoming film, Descendants, The Rise of Red. That's all the time we have for the African-American Hour. My name is Rosemary Awkward. Thanks for joining me.